Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It is Friday, August 19th, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese is away. This week, Jim Milliot, PW Editorial Director, joins me to share the company's reporting on the Department of Justice suit to block Penguin Random House's acquisition of rival Big Five publisher Simon & Schuster. Welcome back to the program, Jim. Good to be here, Chris. The Department of Justice's case against the proposed merger of SNS with PRH entered its third week on Monday. Defense attorney Dan Petroselli called PRH U.S. CEO Madeline McIntosh to detail the lifespan of a book. The court heard specifically about one title codenamed Book H. What did McIntosh say was, in fact, the relationship between author advances and a publisher's business plans, Jim? Well, Chris, she downplayed the importance of an advance in terms of marketing. And that's something that's been a subject of the, the two weeks of trial prior, that the publishers and some agents have agreed with this, that the amount of the advance, whether it's a million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, the author is going to get, you know, basically the same marketing treatment. Um, not sure how much everybody believes that. But I mean, Madeline did make some good points in that. A lot of marketing is driven by things that you can't really plan for, like if a book gets selected as a big book club uh, pick, right? Or if some newspaper comes along. So she says, you know, they react in real time in these sort of things. So it was, it's an interesting, it was an interesting argument. And again, you know, it's, it's trying to play down that, you know, only the big authors get the, the big marketing budgets. But, you know, there was other things that she brought up in terms of the size of the advance. She was really quite open about the fact that, you know, the, the books that really be, can become the most profitable are the ones that are breakout surprise hits. You know, and she pointed to such titles as like uh, Gone Girl which, you know, I'm not sure how much they acquired it for, but I guess the first book was a relatively modest amount. And, you know, and it became a huge blockbuster and delivered a lot to um, to the bottom line there. And that's a thing that the judge has been trying to get her head around in terms of, you know, uh, don't you want publishing to be profitable? She's asked a couple of times because, you know, that the PNL, as you referenced for uh, um, buying a book is, is a crapshoot. You know, you, you, you take a lot of guesses and then when you buy the book and you start marketing it, you start publishing it, you, you see what you got. I think there's been a lot of, you know, is publishing art or publishing science. It's been a lot of debate about that. And it might come back to the old, so it's a bit of both. Well, indeed. I just imagine the question to someone on the witness stand. So don't you want your business to be profitable? Remember, you're under oath. <laughs> I know. It, it, it was a well, look. You know, she's coming new to publishing on this. I'm sure she's read up a lot about it. But she did seem mystified by some things. <laughs> <laughs> so were people in the courtroom, I'm sure. Judge Florence Pan, who you're speaking of, she announced she would exclude testimony from Manuel Sansigure, who is the senior VP and global head of mergers and acquisitions at Penguin Random House. In her ruling there, Pan said Sansigre's financial statements could not be independently verified, which is required by precedent. And in fact, she said uh, she was especially critical of his revenue projections. 
However, since Seagrave's testimony has already unsettled PRH and SNS employees, as he had previewed the possibility of layoffs, excuse me, headcount synergies, if the merger were approved. Uh, I think the San Gray testimony was about is uh, a bigger blockbuster bombshell unexpected development that we had. As you as you've mentioned, he was their merged and acquisition expert. He had this very detailed plan of how they would merge things going forward. And the overriding idea for appointing a random house was to point out how these increased efficiencies would give uh, Penguin Random House and Emerge Simon & Schuster more funds to pay for advances and to promote the books. But in the course of this, he talked about, well, Simon & Schuster's sales force is like five times smaller than ours, so we really wouldn't need to add them to them. And that on the distribution of warehouse side, oh, well, you know, we're only going to need one of the three warehouses that Simon & Schuster owns. And, you know, in the IT, you know, we're just going to merge that all together. So uh, the folks over at Simon & Schuster in particular were, were not amused. For the bulk of the people over there have come to realize, look, Simon & Schuster is going to be sold. Penguin Random House is a great publishing company. You know, it could be a lot worse to go, you know, to go there than somewhere else. But I think they got a little rattled um, by, by what they were hearing. And especially um, – San Gray also sort of alluded to the fact that maybe some editors would get laid off. So uh, the PRH folks, you know, went through a bit of uh, damage control and, you know, put out statements saying no, nobody in uh, editorial, you know, would be affected by this. And then actually Justice Pan herself, when she dismissed San Gray's testimony, which, you know, we kind of overlooked that for a second. She threw it out because she said it wasn't verifiable. Even though, you know, he went through this whole thing, everybody reported on it, everybody knew what he said, and she said she wasn't going to admit it because she didn't trust that the numbers had been verified. She, you know, she didn't really question his integrity, but said, you know, in these type of things, we need an outside party to review these, and nobody did. So... She, she threw it out. And then in the course of doing that, she said, oh, well, you know, and you've identified cost savings of $81 million. And apparently that was supposed to stay secret. So that was something else that, that um, the random house folks had to, had to go into a little bit of overdrive and explain where all that money was coming from. And indeed, they pointed to the, the bulk of it would be and the distribution in IT side of the business and not on the editorial side. So it's not a secret that, you know, when you do a merger that there are going to be redundancies. So the fact that, I mean, I give Sam Segria, I don't think he knew what he was getting into in terms of how this might ruffle people's feathers and stuff. But he was laying out what he saw as, you know, this is why this is how we can be more profitable. You know, this is why the merger would be a good thing in terms of generating extra funds to, to pay authors and to promote their books. And all of a sudden, the, the something hit the fan. And when she, uh, when she overruled it or threw it out, it was a surprise, but not a complete surprise. Because in the pre-motion hearings, she had said and brought up the fact that you know, she she was very skeptical that she would admit this evidence that was just not verified. All the figures, all the data, you know, were just coming from Penguin Random House without any, again, third party taking a look at it. 
Well, the defense did have a third party on the stand this week, Jim. Yale School of Management professor Edward Snyder was there to testify, and he challenged the government's theory that the proposed merger would lead to lower advances for authors. As part of his argument, Snyder credited literary agents with remarkable negotiating prowess. (laughs) Yeah, and I think he's actually even added to that saying they don't have guns, they have tactics. Because one of the DOJ attorneys said, well, how can they really make this happen? But as he detailed the uh, the other day that, you know, under the, uh, the, the bidding procedures of Penguin Random House, and of course, the whole bidding process is what's really under review here to some degree, and that Marcus Dolly, the head of Penguin Random House, has promised that Simon & Schuster editors could still keep bidding. And that way, you know, not to lower competition for the big books that we're talking about here. So... Snyder went through this whole thing about, well, you know, editors that are bidding on the same books from the same publishing houses, the agents have figured out a way to keep two or three in the game by certain tactics that are a little arcane to explain here. But that, you know, Snyder gave him a lot of credit for, and I guess the agent would tell one editor to something and another editor to something else and, you know, to try to keep the they keep the bidding going, which, which, you know, obviously makes a lot of sense. But it's always also to bolster this case that the agent community shouldn't need to worry because they're not going to be eliminating a major player for the big books here. You know, that Simon & Schuster editors will still be able to compete and that Penguin Random House editors, you know, have, have been allowed to compete against each other since that Penguin Random House merger about 10 years or so ago. And that that would carry forward. And they had offered codify, you know, make it some sort of part of whatever agreement you would need to uh, to get the deal done. But uh, Marcus Stoli said uh, in his testimony that they never were able to reach to reach some sort of agreement uh, and get it into law. And Snyder's flattery of agents, Jim, didn't win them over, at least not at the Association of American Literary Agents, which this week released a survey of its members about the case. Yeah, right. Yes. Uh, right you are, Chris. I think this survey may have been timed to see how the, the trial was going, because there were a number of literary agents, to be fair, who went up there. Andrew Wiley, you know, one of the biggest big shots in the agency community, said he didn't think a merger would... Uh, her competition, and a number of others were, you know, well-known also took that tact and said, you know, in their, in their estimation, it wouldn't really hurt that much. And that, you know, when they were looking to do a deal, they just weren't focusing on the size of the advance, but the editor, the quality of the publication, how, how the manuscript would be handled, and all those other factors. But, you know, it's, it's no secret that the agent community in general didn't like it. And they did release yesterday uh, a poll of the membership that found about 90% were against it for the the reasons we've been talking about, that they were afraid it would lower competition and in turn lower advances. So, you know, again, it's uh, it's not a surprise. It's, you know, it's not uniform that every agent uh, is going to be against it. As we we just talked about, there were some who testified for the Penguin Random House uh, merger. But I do think, by and large, and as this poll showed, that the, the majority of agents, you know, have a lot of questions about it. 
Last Friday, Sir Salman Rushdie was attacked just as he was being introduced for a lecture at the Chautauqua Institution in western New York State. The highly regarded author of the Satanic Verses and many other novels was the target of a fatwa or decree issued in 1989 by then Supreme Leader of Iran, Rayahola Khomeini, that called for Rushdie's death. A suspect, Hadi Matar of New Jersey, was overpowered and arrested immediately. In a jailhouse interview with the New York Post, Matar said Rushdie had attacked Islam, though he said, I read a couple of pages of the Satanic Verses. When Khomeini directed his fatwa 33 years ago at Rushdie, publishers and translators of the book also received death threats and several were attacked. So, Jim, what's been the reaction to the 2022 stabbing? And remind us how the book world responded in 1989 when Rushdie was forced to go into hiding. Well, as you can imagine, Chris, uh, you know, the book world really quickly united around Rushdie. On Friday, Pan America is having a rally for Rushdie, uh, I think, in front of the New York Public Library. You know, dozens, if not hundreds of uh, authors have issued support of it. Every major organization involved in publishing has, you know, offered their support and denounced the attack. And you know, a lot of it's coming from, obviously, concern for Rushdie. You know, this also translates back to 1989, uh, seeing it as attack on uh, free expression, the First Amendment, National Coalition Against Censorship, definitely brought up those issues as well as the Authors Guild and their statement of support for it. And that, you know, we just can't allow this to happen. And uh, it's another, another th- worrying item in what's been, you know, sort of an ongoing assault on uh, the First Amendment and free expression. And that, and that was one of the things that um, really did come to the fore back in the, when this happened originally. Because I remember I was actually covering publishing back then. And, you know, obviously when the photo was issued, you know, everybody was shocked. Um, Peter Mayer was running Penguin at the time and he was, you know, giving guards and uh, for quite a while, they would check under his uh, car and stuff like that. But to me, the more striking thing was what was happening in the bookstores. They were having real concerns about, should we sell this book and put our employees in danger? And I remember interviewing Harry Hoffman, who was at the time was the head of uh, Walden Books, which back then was, you know, probably the biggest bookstore chain, if, if not the second one. And, you know, he put it pretty clearly, and I still remember it, he said, you know, I'm not going to have some 20-year-old clerk die to support free expression. And, you know, that, that resonated with me. And I, PW and myself, you know, we're big supporters of the First Amendment and free expression. But, you know, that's what makes it so complicated. I mean, do what you want to want, risk some 20-year-old's life, you know, to sell a book. You know, and I, in some ways, we're still grappling with that now. I mean, where do you draw the line on, on certain things and, and what's acceptable speech nowadays? You know, it's, uh, you know, I think today it's even more fraught back then. Uh, if this fatwa was issued today, I mean, I don't know what would happen. Well, Jim Elliott, we appreciate your reporting and your recollections. Jim Elliott, Publishers Weekly Editorial Director, thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure, Chris. Coming up on the next podcast from CCC, the University Library holds a central role as a study space. With enrollment increasingly diverse, librarians and administrators see responsibility for making that study space into a welcoming space, too. Yet the values and assumptions many have about libraries and librarians can be obstacles. 
Cherished ideals of neutrality and impartiality have traditionally ignored systemic racism in libraries and the exclusion of people of color in those spaces. Jill Hurst-Wall is an anti-racism auditor with Wider Stand Consulting, which works to identify the most effective strategies for an organization to move forward in its desire to be anti-racist. She is Professor Emerita at Syracuse University, where she was most recently director of the iSchool Public Libraries Institute. The work she's doing is challenging, especially for many librarians who've been in the profession a long time and think of themselves as good librarians. They do think of themselves as good librarians. It can't be us. We're not the problem. We're welcoming. We have the best of intentions, which means that we're not actually looking at what we're doing as librarians. And so we need to learn more about racism and about being anti-racist. We need to maybe have someone else look at what we're doing I, I, having done this work now for a while, I really do advocate for having a third party, no matter who that third party is, look at what you're doing, because you're going to say, we're fine, but maybe you're not fine. And that third party will see where there's some problems in your organization. Making libraries welcoming spaces, coming on the next CCC podcast. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts. And please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening to this Velocity of Content podcast from CCC.